0: Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Michael Primrose, welcome to the Tej Talks
1: Podcast. Thank you very much. Cheers for having me on.
0: Not a problem. Now, this is a, a special... Um, and one of the first ones I'm doing where I'm talking to people who, uh, I guess you know, property investors would consider to be members of their power team—really important members that will get them access to finance. In your case, construction, building, refurbs in other cases, technology in others. So I'm really excited to be uh, to be doing this new special episode with you. And I think I think we've we've kind of met. Uh, I think it was a networking event where you presented a lot of your case studies, a lot of the figures was quite in depth and I could really tell that you were so passionate about property finance. So I thought you know what let's let's get you on um and you've also got your own podcast which you could talk about. So Michael who
1: who who are you? Who am I? The the million dollar question. So yeah so I'm Michael Brimers. um I recently set up uh, a new brand for myself uh, called the property finance guy. Um it, it's a brand that I'm mega passionate about. Um, and the idea behind it is basically, I, I, so I've gone from being employed as a broker to setting up a brokerage with business partners to now going completely solo. And the re- the reason I'm so passionate about it is because, and the reason I've gone solo is because I want to deliver the best possible service to people. And I think sort of from, from previous history, uh, that wasn't always possible. Uh, where I've been before so that's why I've gone completely solo I'm in in control of of what can happen Uh, and the reason that I set up the property finance guy uh, was so that people have got something that they can sort of cling on to as this is the guy to speak to when you're looking for property finance Um, and off the back of that I then set up the property finance academy Um, I've now got the property finance group which is a Facebook group as well um, and I've also got uh, my own podcast, which is the Product Structure and Strategy uh, podcast, which is all about sort of raising commercial finance uh, and how to raise it in the most effective way as well. So that that's all happened in sort of like the last three months, which is which is insane. Um, as well as that, I'm now a property investor uh, quite actively as well. Um, that actually came off the back of... Um, some, some not pleasant things that were said by a previous business partner. Um, and he he highlighted that I had not invested in property. Uh, so I took that on board and went out and bought six houses, um, just as a bit of a middle finger, really, to say. Well, so, so, yeah, so myself and the wife, uh, we set up a couple of companies. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're now actively uh, investing in, in flips and HMOs. Um, I'm actually the other really nice thing as well is I'm actually using lenders who I've used for other people as well. Um, so it's it's quite nice because I'm sort of I'm not pushing these lenders on people, sort of without any experience of them. I'm saying, well, actually, I know this lender's good because I'm actually actively using them. Um, so yeah, that that's a a very brief sort of last three months history uh, of me really. Um, outside of that, I, I mean, I, I started off life as a conveyancer um ended up running a, a small little office and took my own caseload uh got a bit bored of conveyancing it's it's very much the same thing every single day uh then went into a state agency didn't really get on too well with that um found it it's a very cutthroat business um but it's also it's not ideal when you're in small offices with people It can get very competitive um so yeah I wasn't wasn't massively keen on that so I moved away from that and that's when I ended up in brokering uh, and yeah it's all just sort of evolved from there really.
0: Wow and has having that kind of legal and then you know partly the kind of estate agent background I mean do they both help you today as a broker?
1: Oh massively I mean the the bit of, of this that I'm most passionate about is structuring deals um, and to have that legal experience the estate agency experience it's really, well, it's invaluable when you look at a deal and, and you can actually come up with ways of structuring deals that, that other brokers just wouldn't think of. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been massively, massively helpful to me. Um, and it also it's also given me some key sort of starting steps uh, when, when setting up on my own, because I, I had this black book of property investors and developers who I've helped in the past who I could call upon for some quick business.
0: Wow. And, you know, I think most people know these reasons and most people do use brokers. But for anyone who's, you know, like brand new to property and kind of thinks, oh, well, you've got the broker, you've got to potentially pay him a fee. Why don't I just go direct and, you know, do all the stuff? If you had to say the top three reasons for using a broker, briefly, what would they be?
1: Okay, so the, the first one is nobody who isn't a broker has got time. To understand the entire finance market. So the, the great thing about having a broker is that they are dealing with all of the lenders day in, day out. They know who's lending, who's not lending. They know who's pulled out of the market, who's not lending funds at the minute. They know who the good relationship managers are. They know who the good underwriters are. They know who can get the case through the quickest. So it, it's good to have that knowledge so that you can just go out to market and say, look, this is the deal. These are the people that are going to lend. Uh, the second bit is time. I would always say, uh, so not time in understanding the lenders, but time to actually put the application through, have conversations, arrange valuations, arrange the legal, get through all of that. It's so much easier to just hand that off to a broker and just let the broker deal with it. Now, most people could, I mean, I guess that leads quite nicely into the third point, which is actually a good broker saves you more than they cost you. So, for example, on on some cases that I work on, I mean, I might charge a 1% broker fee if it's a complicated case. That 1% might equate to, let's say, £10,000 on a million pound deal. However, if I can get a really good lender on board and get a good interest rate, I might get the interest rate down from 12% to 8%, for example, just by going to a good lender. Well, that 4% difference in interest, I mean, that's huge over the space of, maybe an 18 month scheme. So if you've got a good broker, what they cost you is always going to be worth it. If you've got a poor broker, then yeah, it's, it can be a very expensive exercise.
0: Great point. And then leading on from your last point, what would be your kind of top three tips for finding a good broker? Because there's so many out there, you go on Facebook, say I'm looking for a broker, you get 100 messages all at once. I mean, you know, really, how are you supposed to Tell who the best is or who who the good ones are?
1: Definitely. So, I think number one is recommendations. So, looking at the Facebook post, for example, I mean, you always see that you you sort of get it, it ends up being 50 50. So, you end up with 50% of people on there are actually recommending a broker or that broker has been recommended by someone. The other 50% is a broker touting their own services. Now, in my opinion, I would instantly get rid of the 50% that are in their own business, because this is all about recommendations. And the thing is, if someone isn't being recommended on a post, right, it's not always the case, but if someone isn't being recommended on a post, it's because either they're not doing enough deals or they're not good enough. Um, so I would always go for the people who are being recommended on the Facebook posts uh the second bit is i would then take those ones that have been recommended i would then look on their facebook pages their websites um all of that sort of thing see what content they're putting out so for example i put a lot of content out a lot of content i think it irritates quite a lot of people sometimes but but for me it's all about getting that content out because i want people to be able to look at my facebook page for example and go "Bloody okay this guy does know what he's talking about And similarly, if you look at uh, a few other brokers, Facebook pages, again, you look at it and you go, right, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. So, but if I go onto someone's Facebook page and it's pictures of cats doing, I don't know what, and there's just nothing finance related on there. It's not a business page. There is no business page. There's no website. There's no content creation going on. Again, I'd, I'd sort of step back from that and be like, okay, does this person know what they're talking about? Um, and I think number three as well, which, which leads quite nicely off the back of that, is check out their connections with lenders. So another great thing to look at is, OK, well, has this broker been to any of the conferences? Are they going to conferences? Are they getting in touch with lenders? Have they got these connections? So that, that last one's a little bit vague. But I think as long as you can look at a broker and go, you know what? This guy knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. And he's been recommended. I think it, it seems like a no-brainer to to have that conversation with them uh, and push things forward.
0: Okay, no, absolutely solid advice. And the, the kind of the point you made about that content piece really links to like social proof and social trust. And I think you know to, to add to that, you got to think if if someone, a broker or, or anyone in the, you know in business, has a really big personal brand and is putting out lots of content. They will fall the hardest if they mess up. So for them, there's a lot more pressure, you know, like for you, Michael, if someone, if you did someone wrong and they kind of spoke about you, a lot more people would find out about it because you have a big brand and you have a lot of content. Whereas someone who isn't posting is kind of more protected and that sounds really negative, but you've got to protect yourself, right? So sometimes working with people who have those big personal brands protects you both from things going wrong because no one wants to ruin their integrity or reputation right
1: Um, it's my one of my biggest fears is somebody slating me on facebook because it it would literally wipe my business off the face of the earth in a night um everything i do is through facebook within the progressive community i'm very very invested in that community obviously one thing i didn't mention before as well which i probably should have uh, is obviously the launch of my ppn event in london um so for me if i cock up i literally lose my networking event i'll lose my business it's yeah it's so much more pressure but it makes it yeah sometimes a bit more uh, exhilarating.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's the kind of double-edged sword of social media, right? Like the, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, they say. So the bigger you build your brand, the, the, you have to actually do what you say you're going to do, which is good because it, it, it's social media holding you accountable. But that's, that's a whole different podcast on that. But um, it, it's definitely some, some interesting points you've raised there and, and one for people to look out for. So I, I know earlier you mentioned about the fees. I mean, obviously it varies from broker to broker, but typically what should people expect to pay a broker?
1: So uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, it varies humongously. Um, so I mean, my my concentration is more on the commercial side. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave the residential because I, I just don't have enough experience of, of brokers in that sector to comment on, on what they're charging. Um, but in the commercial sector, the sort of average that i'm seeing out there at the minute is anywhere from half a percent up to two percent as a broker fee um and then upfront fees are varying anywhere from like myself i charge 295 up front uh, some people charge 500 pounds up front some people charge 1500 pounds up front i think the the fee no two broker uh, no two brokers have the same fees and i think really what people need to be looking at is not what those fees are going to cost them Uh, but what they're going to get in return for those fees um so for example my my 295 that i charge up front that's refundable if i can't get someone an agreement in principle or if the deal actually completes so realistically for for someone coming to me and and sort of paying that fee it's no risk to them because if i can't do my job they get their feedback and if i do my job they get their feedback um so that, that's the sort of thing you want to be looking for. I mean, if someone's going to charge you 1,500 quid up front, uh, but that's non-refundable, it's, yeah, that, that would be a worry for me if you were paying that much up front and, and not really getting a lot back for it. Um, but, yeah, absolutely everyone charges completely different fees.
0: And, and you know it, it's important there you mentioned what matters is not the fee it's the roi right it's not how much you pay for it. it it's what it gives you but i know there's some brokers out there who sometimes don't charge the investor a fee because they get it all off the um off the lender it you know is that something that you would say is is to be avoided or is it just it's just another way of structuring fees for brokers
1: it's just literally another way of structuring fees so i, I do it myself with with some deals if if a lender is going to pay me a one percent commission i'm not going to then take a further one percent from the client because it it just doesn't make any sense um yeah i'm not a greedy person um and you can do so well in this business You, you don't need to be greedy there's enough business out there for everyone to live a very nice lifestyle um so yeah there's there's no need to be greedy on it but yeah i think if what what would concern me actually, so just talking about this, is if a broker was offering you a cashback, because I mean that sounds great. So if I was going to go to a broker, so if I went to two brokers and and both were charging a thousand pounds up front, both were charging a one percent broker fee, but one was offering me a fifty percent cashback. Most people would go for the fifty percent cashback, but a little alarm in my head goes off, going, well, hang on a minute, why is he giving me fifty percent cashback that this other one isn't? And the sceptical side of me goes, well, if he's giving me 50% cashback, it's because he's struggling for business. And he's giving away some of the business in order to pull in new business. Now, again, that's not always true, but it, I, I would just have an alarm bell go off a little bit there. So I would just explore that in a bit more detail. Um, but yeah, just a, another little nugget there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. Something to to think about and question, not always kind of jump at the, the free money or easy money. Um, so... Let's kind of get into lending. So, just for everyone listening, in terms of the structure of this podcast, we're going to start with a few basic questions from me about finance and kind of maybe busting some myths. We're going to then go into a um, case study from Adam Hussey, who was on the podcast uh, recently, who works with Michael. Um, and then we're going to go through the crowdsourced questions that you from the community have given us. So, to start off, Michael, I guess what would be really good is like when, you know, as an investor for me, for example, when I'm going to get lending, are there any, and when I say lending, I mean everything you have access to, bridging, mortgages, whatever it is, are there any basic criteria that really we should meet to be eligible for, for any type of lending? And also, does, you know, things like credit score affect the interest rate you're going to have? Does your job affect, you know, the upfront fees? Like how, you know, is there an ideal candidate?
1: So again, I'll just sort of focus on the on the commercial side. Um, commercial finance, which is your bridging, development finance, commercial mortgages, which entail sort of limited company buy to lets, SA mortgages, HMO mortgages, portfolio mortgages. All of these are becoming more accessible to everyone. So to take bridging as an example, bridging is asset based finance. Um, so asset based lenders really only focus on the asset rather than the person. So what this gives you is someone who's got a poor credit score, maybe they've been bankrupt, uh, maybe they've got no income, all this bridging makes property accessible to these people. So realistically, there's no criteria as such for bridging development. Uh, I think with those, you've you've got to have a good deal on the table. Now, if you are bankrupt, if you've got credit issues, if you're inexperienced, that is what affects your interest rate and bridging and development. So that puts you in the 1% a month sort of region. If you've got good credit, your experience, uh, maybe you've got a portfolio behind you, then that moves you into more like the 0.65 to 0.7% range. Now, if you move into commercial mortgages, that's where it gets slightly more complicated. Um, So with portfolio mortgages, HMO mortgages, SA mortgages, limited company, buy to let's, those sort of things, you need to, in theory, be experienced in order to get into those. You need to have good credit. You need to essentially have an income coming in. Um, Now, with most commercial lenders, there isn't a minimum income that you need. Uh, So, for example, I could have a thousand pounds a month coming in from a property rental and that that would be sufficient. Um, So as long as they can see an income coming from somewhere, most of them will take a look at it. Um, With the HMO mortgages, normally to get an HMO mortgage, you realistically need to have owned a couple of buy-to-lets before. Now, there are lenders like Kent Reliance, for example, who will allow you to take on an HMO mortgage as long as you're not a first-time buyer. So what that means is you could bridge the purchase of a property, convert it into an HMO, and then refinance onto an HMO mortgage because you're not then a first-time buyer. So that's one way that you can sort of get around that. With obviously portfolio mortgages, are self, self-explanatory, self you need to have a portfolio, obviously to take a portfolio mortgage. Um, and obviously credit and income and things will, will come into that as well. Um, but what I would say is nobody, i try to think the best way to word this, um, everyone has access to finance these days. There isn't anyone that I've dealt with who I've had to turn away because of credit or anything like that. Now, I might not have experienced the worst possible client yet, um, but I have have had some pretty bad ones Um, and everyone I've been able to help. Uh, So what I would say to people is if if you're getting started out, if you've got bad credit, if you've got... Uh, no income if you're struggling a bit maybe you've got a little bit of cash in the bank but you can't get a buy to let mortgage you can't get a resi mortgage that. have a think about doing some flips because even the worst credit on the planet you're still potentially going to be able to get bridging finance as long as the, the deal stacks up so i would think about if it really is that bad moving into some flips first uh, and then sort of diversify from there as circumstances get better.
0: I like that. That's very interesting. I think it's one of those things, isn't it? As long as a, a lender or someone giving money has some sort of security, they will potentially just give you money. Because I've seen some of the the deals that people have bridged and kind of looked at, you know, when I've spoken to people about their background and their profile, and it seems that bridges just just give money sometimes. Like,
1: as yeah, as I long mean, they're- They'll look at anything. As long as the deal stacks up, you really can just... There's so much money around at the minute. Um, I mean, it's just incredible. Um, you've got more and more people. I mean, we'll come on to this a bit later on because I think we've got a peer-to-peer question. But yeah, the the amount of money that's out there at the minute is just ridiculous.
0: Mm. And, and speaking of money, uh, a kind of common question, and and, and Sonny Mahal on, on the um, crowdsource questions kind of joked about this, is it's kind of free money slash hundred percent finance. Now I've spoken to some brokers where they kind of say, you know, we can get hundred percent finance, but after all fees, et cetera, et cetera, it ends up being like 86% or something LTV actually. Is there a way that you can get a hundred percent finance?
1: So I'm going to hit the question from two different perspectives. I'm going to hit it from development finance and I'm going to hit it from bridging finance. So development finance, uh, it is possible. It, it can be done. So you can get, that. there's two different versions of 100% finance. And this is where some confusion comes in. So you can either have 100% finance, which is 100% of your build costs, or you can have 100% finance, which is 100% of everything. So that's every cost that you can imagine. So that one is normally done through a lender called GoDevelop. So they normally lend 100% of everything. Um, I think you're going to have them as a as a guest probably fairly soon, Ted. So I, I won't ruin I won't ruin too much about that. But yeah, keep an eye out for Go Develop. Um, the second one, the hundred percent of development costs. That's that's easy. That's bread and butter stuff. Um, so I would say almost, well, actually, all deals should get a hundred percent of build cost because lenders want a hundred percent of the control over the release of those build costs. Now, what you want in that scenario is you also want the biggest contribution towards the purchase. So this is where potentially you need to bring in some more creative strategies. So deferring purchase price, uh, JVing with the landowner. Um, there's all sorts of different ways that you can do it. You could bring in equity crowdfunding. There's ways of getting that equity into a deal. But even on 100% finance, I would still say you need to be prepared to pay out for valuations, legals, potentially stamp duty. Um, there's still going to be some cost involved for you. So what I would say, other than go develop, there isn't really absolute one hundred percent finance uh, available because you're always going to have, even if it, albeit a very small proportion of costs, there's still going to be some cost involved. Um, and then, so that that's on the development side, finance side of things. So on bridging finance, it is possible to get hundred percent of the purchase price. It's absolutely possible. Um, And actually, we recently, we've uh, done it for Adam Hussey, who obviously is going to be on the podcast a bit later on. um, And he actually managed to raise 102% of the purchase price. And that that was after fees and interest. So the reason being is because if you can pick up a property below market value, you're actually able to, through bridging, you're actually able to borrow against the market value. So you can potentially borrow up to, 80% 80% of the market value. So if you can get a deal where you're picking something up 30, 35% below market value, and it's it's a true discount, not just you've gone into an estate agent and put a cheeky offer in, then yeah, it, it's definitely possible uh, to get 100% finance. So on the bridging side of things, the, the bit that's gonna be the most difficult is realistically going to be getting the valuer to actually value it at the true market value. So the reason I say that is because if valuers find out what you've paid for a property, they'll just value it at that. So it does take a little bit of logistical uh, logistical juggling even um, because you've got to keep the estate agent away, you've got to keep the vendor away. So you, realistically, you need to book in a valuation, attend the valuation yourself, try to keep from the value of what you've actually paid for it because you want a true market valuation. Now, I'm not saying about being fraudulent or anything like that. It's you realistically want the valuer to go out there and value it what it is actually worth, not just, oh, what well, he's bought it for that. It must be worth that because you want to know what it's worth based on comparables and everything else. So that that's the hardest bit, I would say, of the transaction is actually getting the valuer to value it what it's actually worth rather than just the purchase price
0: wow very interesting and I guess moving on to that for my next kind of question is so I'm personally looking at deals in Wales now the problem with Wales is there's not much kind of comparable data right so what I find is the same street may not have that many sold comparables in the kind of same year or couple of years the whole town May not have that many sold comparables at all because of I don't know I guess the culture or the way of selling and living there. Now I'm trying to, in some shape or form, understand what the end GDV will be of this house. Obviously, I can do a right move. I can do my research. I can call agents. Blah blah blah. But nothing, nothing tells me that the lender is going to agree with all of this for whatever reason. Is there a way? And I think maybe Shawbrook do like a, a bridge to let product on this where. I can buy it with bridging but when I buy it with the bridging I can have a valuer come in for an end mortgage who will say it's worth this much or no it will be worth this much when it's all done up and I have the confidence to go ahead with that purchase and spend money on it knowing I will reval at a good amount.
1: Yeah it's definitely possible um so, uh, again, I'll, I'll talk through two different options. So, the first one you've got is the bridge to let. So, that's where you essentially take a bridging loan with the same lender then agreeing to also give you the exit as well. So, essentially, the the lender, so let's say Shawbrook, I'll use Shawbrook as an example. So, Shawbrook put the bridging loan in place. They then also agree to do the exit as well. So, obviously, at valuation stage, they do a valuation based on the initial bridge and the exit to make sure that they're comfy. The second option is actually the one that I'm doing myself at the minute on our flips, because like you, I had exactly the same worry. There was nothing sold nearby. The stuff that had sold was in way in excess of what I expected mine to get. So what I did is basically I spoke to my bridging company at the time, which was the bridging group. I said, look, I'm really nervous about the exit. I said, I'm I'm selling it. I'm not going to keep it. I'm just going to sell it. I said, I'm just worried that I'm going to go and spend this money and I'm going to have a problem. So, what they did was they actually instructed a valuation at that point with a GDV element built into it as well. Now, it did cost me a little bit extra, not a huge amount. I think it was a hundred pounds extra. um But what happened is the valuer went out and said, Okay, yeah, we, we believe as it stands right now, it's worth this. We believe that the client wants to spend ten thousand pounds on the property. We believe with that ten thousand pounds spent on it, with him doing X, Y, and Z, it will be worth this when it's finished and they quoted some comparables and actually it looked as if their numbers were a bit lower than actually what what it probably could get um so their numbers were still higher than mine so i thought it was going to be worth 165 when it was finished they've actually come back and said we think it'd be worth 175 and actually they've quoted a comparable at 190. so actually to be fair it could go for higher but that was also really beneficial for me because they were quoting comparables that I didn't have access to. So because they have this fandangled version of Rightmove that us muggles don't have access to, they uh, they had access to to some data that I didn't. So they were able to sort of pull out some some comparables that I never would have found. Um, and that, it just made it really helpful for me. And, and actually, they've taken all the worry out of the scheme for me um again they've done that on the second one as well i thought it was going to be worth 135 they're coming back more like 140 145 um so actually i can now go into these purchases with some confidence that valuers who are nervous about brexit as well they are massively nervous about brexit even with that they're still coming back higher than i was um and the fact that they're quite in comparables as well is really really powerful so i think when you go for finance on these purchases, just ask the valuer or ask the, the broker, the lender, whoever you're in contact with, to just do a GDV valuation at the same time as well. So for the sake of a hundred pounds extra, you can just get some confidence of, okay, this is what it's going to be worth when it's finished.
0: Okay. And then I guess at that stage, if the valuer comes back and says it's worth way below what you thought, um, obviously you can maybe do the same process with another lender, but if, you, if you're kind of spooked and you think, you know what, well, actually, I, I believe this valuer and this lender, can you then sort of pull out? As in, are you at a very early stage with the lender? When they you're say-
1: a, Yeah, you're at a very early stage. So when when the valuation takes place, normally that can happen before you've instructed searches, it can happen before any contracts. But you, you can do it so that the valuation is the only thing that you've paid for in a transaction. So you pay for the valuation, get it out of the way. Uh, so like with mine, so I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to those because I'm, I'm in the same situation. Um, but those two, for example, had the valuations come back poorly, I could have pulled out and I would have been, the only thing I would have had to pay for is the small amount of legal work that my solicitor had done, which to be fair, I could have told him not to do. I could have told him to hold off. Um, but I, I yeah, I, I thought let's just crack on with it. Um, and the valuation cost that's all I will have paid out um so yeah i i could have pulled out at that point yes okay i would have upset the agents a little bit but actually you just put the valuation in front of the agent and say look really sorry it's been down valued not a lot i can do
0: absolutely oh okay that's that's really reassuring to hear and yeah okay cool i think that's gonna open a lot of doors up for for people to to do that because you know especially with Brexit, you know, revals are kind of a, always a sticking point, you know, it's like a dark art, we just don't know what the value is going to say, but that is, that is fantastic. So, um, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a bit of confusion with the whole BRR model. For anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's the buy, refurbish, refinance. Now, you know, when I started, and I think when I speak to people who are starting as well, there's a belief or someone's teaching that you can buy on a mortgage, a property, let's say you buy it for 100k, really easy maths, on a mortgage, do it up, six months later, it's going to be worth 150, let's just be really easy maths, um, and then you can remortgage it at 150, pull out your money, blah, 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 carry on. You know, that's not really the case, is it? How, how should a BR really be done from a financial aspect?
1: Yeah, so what I would say with, with that is a lot of people are, are playing with fire with that strategy. Because to buy a property on a normal mortgage, to then do refinance and then remortgage, is actually in breach of most lenders' mortgage conditions. Um, and if they find out that you've done work to a property, they just won't refinance it, and they may even call in the debt. So, for example, we've got a couple of HMOs that were buying with Kent Reliance. And we're putting them straight onto Kent Reliance mortgages because they don't actually need any refurb. Uh, we're not going to remortgage them. But we were specifically told if we did any work and then tried to refinance it and they found out we'd done work, that they'd just call the debt in and that would be it. Now, I don't know if they were just being overly cautious, um, but that that would be a massive risk. So the way that most people are doing it now is is actually coming back to this bridge to let that we were talking about before. So where you bridge it, you do the refurb and then you refinance normally within six months as well. Uh, onto sort of an exit product. So again, I'm going to use Shawbrook, but there are other lenders available. It's just most people know Shawbrook. So you you would obviously take a 75% bridging loan to begin with. You would do some refurb. You would then go on to a 75% exit. Well, what Shawbrook have actually done now is they've mixed it up a little bit. So actually now you can take an 85% of purchase price bridge at the beginning, because what they do is they incorporate that 10% as part of your refurb costs. Now, obviously, there's other conditions that you've got to hit, uh, which are, are too long for us to go through on this. Um, but by then t- being able to cover a bit of the refurb costs as well, you're then not putting in as much money day one. But also, when they're doing the valuations and things as well, obviously, they're more interested about whether it works or not. So I, I find that strategy works really nicely uh, for your BRR staff. Um, I mean, the other way of doing it is just going into into straightforward development finance, if it's something that's sort of particularly chunky, um, and then just exiting with a completely separate lender. But again, the the risk you've got there is not knowing what it's going to be worth. Um, But again, you can just ask the lender uh, to do sort of an extended valuation. Um, But I think, yeah, I think more people need to be aware that the BRR model is really struggling now for you to get all of your money back out unless you're obviously looking to sell it, um, which obviously wouldn't be BRR. But I I think people need to be aware that they're going to have to start leaving some money because more and more lenders are sort of coming away from allowing you to pull out more money than you put in to begin with. So you can refinance like for like, so you could potentially pull out all your money. But chances are lenders are going to want you to keep a little bit of cash in the deal because they don't want to take all the risk on it. So, you, I mean, you could set up a really good BRR. You could get it all sorted, pull your money back out. What risk have you got left in that property? There's none. So if it starts to go wrong, you could just walk away. You could go, you know what, Yeah, the, the lender can have that. That's fine. I've got no money left. Back. I've got no money left in that. Lender can have it back. It's fine. And it's a massive risk for lenders in that, in that sector. So they, they want to make sure you've got a little bit of cash left in it because they want it to hurt if it goes wrong. And it's the same with developments as well. On development finance, this is why hundred percent finance is so difficult. Because if you've got no money in a development deal, and your builder walks off site, or the deal starts to go wrong, or there's complications, why are you going to stay in that deal? You're going to walk away. Um, and they know that, so they want you to have some skin in the game, so that it hurts if something goes wrong.
0: That's that's really interesting. I never. I never considered that. Like, I never sort of even thought about the lender. I mean, why would you? You, know, you don't think that, oh, actually, they need nah, to de-risk as well.
1: Just, just somebody who takes the money out of your bank. Yeah, every month.
0: Yeah. <laughs> ah, Okay, that's really interesting. And you also said something about 85% LTV and also about calling in debt. So I'd like to briefly touch on the dark side of lending. Now, I guess it'd be good to get a general overview of some of the risks that naturally come with taking on debt and taking on mortgages, but also maybe some of the risk to us as investors that comes with maybe taking on higher LTVs. And then I guess lastly, can a mortgage lender call in their debt whenever they feel like it?
1: So I'm going to touch on on that point first. So in theory, in theory, a lender could call in the debt at any point. Because they could run out of money, you could be in breach of your mortgage conditions, you could, uh, if we have another crash, you could exceed the maximum LTV. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons why they could call it in. Now, it's very, very unlikely, very unlikely. Um, but you always need to keep in the back of your mind that it could happen. Now, obviously, what they need to do is they need to give you fair warning. They can't just sort of call it in and give you a day to give the money back because it's it's never going to happen. Um, so, if they do it, obviously they've got to give you sort of, I think most of them give 30 to 60 days uh, in order to get it sorted out and, and get it paid back. Um, but they also have to give, obviously, a good reason for it as well. Now, most lenders, if they run out of money, tend to just sell the loan book onto someone else. Uh, that that tends to be what happens, which is why you, you tend to see some of the lenders when they go pop, you, you obviously tend to get a letter or something saying, We are now the lender that are looking after this. So, yes, in theory, they could. It is just very, very unlikely. Um, to come back to, to some other risks. Um, so I'm just going to touch on on exceeding maximum LTVs a little bit as well. So by taking these big LTV products, the, the thing you've got to remember, and this, this goes for bridging, development, uh, buy-to-let mortgages, HMO mortgages, absolutely everything, every product. By leveraging yourself to the absolute tip-top, You are running the risk that if the market drops or if something happens, let's say you don't get the sales that you were anticipating, how are you going to pay that debt back? Because if you're borrowing 85% of the purchase price, for example, in in that Shawbrook example, I mean, the market only has to drop a very small amount, really, for it to become very squeaky. So, I mean, let's say the market dropped 5%, all of a sudden you're sat there going okay actually i've only got about 10% of the purchase price in this deal now um now obviously you're hoping to add value but let's let's say for whatever reason uh, that adding value didn't work so you, you've got 10% of the purchase price in that deal now let's say brexit absolutely smashes the property market apart which i don't think it will but let's say it does if that market then drops another 10% all of a sudden what you've borrowed the 85% of purchase price is the same as what you think the property is now worth. So it, it can get very, very dangerous very, very quickly. So I just make sure that if you are going for the higher LTV stuff, that you have got backup plans. So whether it be that you can put another property in a security or put some more money into the deal, or you you just need to have an A to Z of exits because you, you need to be able to get out of a deal if things start going wrong. Um, and then just to touch on sort of risks to to an investor or developer. Um, One of the things that scares the bejesus out of me when I speak to investors and developers is nearly all of them don't know what personal guarantees and debentures are. And it worries me because if a deal goes wrong, they are what the lender is going to call in. So we all know what a first charge is. It's where the lender essentially takes charge over the property. They're the first ones to get the money. Fine. Okay, we're happy with that. Personal guarantee is where you're actually personally guaranteeing the debt of your limited company. So actually what happens then is let's say the market does drop out and the lender loses money. So let's say for whatever reason, you're 10 grand in negative equity. When the property sells, you you end up owing the lender still another 10 grand. They then come after your personal guarantee. Now that is anything that you own in your personal name. So cars, money, personal house is the biggest one. Every deal you do, where you're signing a personal guarantee, your personal house is on the line. Um, and I know this is getting into scary territory. and <laughs> This might be scaring a few people, but pe- people need to be aware that this stuff is out there. Um, so, yeah, PGs obviously are a massive element. Now, PGs normally can be capped to maybe, say, 10% of the debt. So you- you've always got a limited liability there. With debentures, however, that's a fixed and floating charge over all assets within a limited company. Now, the other thing with debentures are they are unlimited. There is no cap on a debenture. So the lender can keep coming after assets in the limited company until that debt is paid back. So you'll always hear accountants, developers, and things like that talking about ring fencing projects. The reason being is because if if I hold my portfolio in Primrose Holdings, for example, I don't then want to go and do a high-risk development in Primrose Holdings because if it goes wrong and there's a debenture over Primrose Holdings, they're just going to go after the portfolio. Whereas if I set up a completely separate SPV, which is a special purpose vehicle, and do the project in there, if it goes wrong and they call in on the debenture, there's nothing that they can take in that company. So I'd, I'd really stress talk to accountants. These guys know everything when it comes to setting up company structures and how to keep you safe from... Losing everything basically
0: mm, okay, cool. and then um before we hear from Adam and his case study, could you maybe briefly share with us the smallest deal you've ever done and the biggest deal you've ever done?
1: okay, so the smallest deal was thirty thousand pounds um that was for a basically just a, a small bridging line. Uh, so what happened is the guy who purchased the property in cash um I think he bought it for about seventy grand um and had then run out of money so basically uh, decided that he wanted to raise it on a bridge because he was struggling to get business loans and and uh, personal finance for sort of credit issues so the idea was raise 30 grand use that for the refurb and then refinance um that's quite an easy deal to be fair 30 grand was sort of fairly easy to get hold of a uh, fairly quick process it was done in a couple of weeks um and yeah it was it was just a fairly easy deal really um so yeah that's that's the smallest one i've ever done um to be fair i don't normally get many that small i don't normally do uh, many under 100 grand to be fair um so yeah that was that was quite a good one for me really um and then the biggest one that i've been involved in was 17 and a half million uh, that was for a, that was for a new build development of flats in Luton uh, that I was involved in with uh, the company that I used to work with. Uh, that was a, that was a team effort. There was, there was a few of us working on that one because um, it, it was a mega deal. Um, so yeah, a few of us got that over the line. Um, but yeah, that was, yeah, about 17 and a half million, I think for, uh, and that was raised through a wealth club uh, and that was for a new build developer who had no experience, no Cash in the bank. Uh, and he was, I think, what was it? He was an ex-mortgage broker, or an ex-Resi mortgage broker, who'd moved over to Dubai, had set up a mortgage brokerage over there, had then come back to the UK. So he was in rented accommodation, so he didn't even own his own home. Uh, and then yeah, we got finance for him to build, I think it was 112 flats. Um, so yeah, that was that was an interesting one. Uh so that was the biggest development of flats. The biggest development of houses uh, is one that we've got going through, which fingers crossed will complete by the time this podcast goes out. Uh, which is for sixty houses. Uh, that's in Lincolnshire, um, and yeah, that's that's about ten million of debt. So that's quite a, quite a chunky one. Uh, that's for the developer who I who I work quite closely with. I, I actually do a couple of days a week in their office. Uh, so they're they're building good couple of hundred. Uh, a couple of hundred units at the minute. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's sort of a, a range of, I mean, most of the stuff I did, the average the average deal normally is around 500 grand to 2.5 million. Uh, that's sort of the, the average at the minute. Obviously, with the communities and things that I'm in, uh, a lot of the people I deal with are, are just getting started out. So that that's a sort of average deal size.
0: Wow, and you know that that first example of the largest one in Luton. I mean, you know, looking at the person's profile and and what debt you managed to raise that for was, him. Yeah,
1: I and mean, that was an incredible deal. I um, mean,
0: anyone can get financed by the sounds of it, as long as you you know, oh, as long as really, the, the deal stacks.
1: Yeah, they really can. I mean, if the, if the deal is there, I mean, yeah, it, it just there is so much money out there. I mean, this we we're, we're going back sort of a year and a half for this deal um so actually to be fair it's probably all built and sold by now i would imagine um but yeah i mean he Easter to make probably the best part of 10 million out of that i think
0: wow just uh, so, yeah, just 10 was, million eh hell, nice yeah, just 10, <laughs> yeah. yeah not bad a years <laughs> worth wow okay well and, and that in itself shows the listeners what is achievable with the right mindset the right deal the right team around you um in in one deal awesome so we're gonna hear a a third voice magically shortly um from adam husley he's going to talk through a a case study of a of a deal that you worked on
2: with him so let's hear from adam hi adam here from doma developments uh we had a particular project which was very very hard to find finance for um i was told by one particular well-known bridging company that this would never be a bridgeable house Um, I approached Michael Primrose and told him the difficulties we were having, especially regarding the fact it was a freehold property with a lease dating back to the 1700s and no one knew exactly which part of the property was leased. Um, Within, I would say, three weeks, I had not only the bridging in place, but the funds in my account to exchange and complete. Um, Communication throughout was absolutely spot on through Michael and from the property finance guy, obviously his company. Um, the bridging company themselves were extremely um, helpful and gave me all the information that I needed, as did Michael. And uh, yeah, very happy all round. At one point it seemed as if we'd never be able to get finance on this particular property at all. But um, yeah, one call um, through to Mr. Primrose and three weeks later, which if anyone's bridged before knows that is exceptionally fast. Um, everything was uh, ready to go the money was in our account and I think it was three weeks and three days or something and we had completed on the project so really pleased with that um, I'd always recommend the property finance guy and uh, yeah Michael Primrose without any hesitation whatsoever
0: so Michael could you talk me through how you helped Adam out in, in that situation
1: yeah, so it's quite an interesting one, really, because uh, I mean, obviously the guys are pretty experienced. Um, the the difficulty we had on this one, obviously, with it being a 15 but HMO above commercial, uh, was was actually selling that that experience that they had, because this was the first time they had anything of this size. Um, so we we tried sort of the normal lenders, tried selling it through to them. Uh, unfortunately, it just it just wasn't one for them. Um, it was just too big. Um so we ended up going through Cambridge and Counties. So the reason that I put it through to Cambridge counties was because they are very commercially minded. Um so again, if the deal stacks up, they'll look at it. Uh now the added complication on this one was actually I was dealing with this case whilst I was in hospital with my wife while she was giving birth to our second child. Um so it was a little bit <laughs> yeah, no stress at all. And we were in hospital for about ten days uh so it was it was quite an interesting one to try and get over the line so but i mean it was it was an interesting one i mean the valuer came out valued it exactly as we wanted him to value it um cambridge and counties were were great up until the point that legals were instructed um so it, it wasn't really cambridge and county's fault it was it was more the solicitor that was on the case was very pedantic is probably the best way of putting it um probably best not to to call him names on the podcast um we'll call him pedantic so he, he was asking for everything and i mean everything stuff that I, i've never known people to have to give um and then after that we so everything was supplied i mean adam and Stephen were great they, they got everything over as quickly as possible um but it was things added stumbling blocks like for example they wanted uh, 12 of the 15 rooms rented out they wanted to the commercial that out before they would even think about drawing any of the money down so poor Adam was was on the phone every day while I'm um, trying to sort of uh, keep personal life uh, afloat as well. Um, and, yeah, it was just it was going between us, trying to work out how we can get people into the rooms quicker, trying to work out how we can get the commercial filled quicker. And it was just crazy. And to be fair, it was all saved by his managing agent, to be fair, because his managing agent was on it, to be fair, and, uh, yeah, managed to get get the rooms filled quickly. Um, but yeah, that was a that was a complicated deal, that one. Um, but again, it goes to show that finance is available for everyone because someone who had no experience of anything bigger than, I think at that point, uh, it was eight or nine rooms, uh, to then go up to 15 with a commercial unit downstairs as well is a jump that 99.9% of lenders wouldn't have accepted. Uh, but then all of a sudden yeah, you've got Cambridge county who so are sort of jumping on it. They love the scheme. Uh and yeah, they yeah, they ended up landing on it.
0: Wow. Okay. What an interesting example and what a Never heard of a, a 15 bed HMO with a commercial underneath. I like that. Okay, and and that again highlights the importance of having an important team in you as a broker, his managing agent himself, and and everyone else in the team. And you know, next time maybe a different solicitor. Um, and, but again, that highlights the importance of of choosing the right people for each area. And you, you may not get it right every time, but it worked out. And and it's successful, and it happened. So I guess there's a there's always a learning experience in that. So so thanks to to Adam for for sharing that with us. So next, let's jump into some crowd sourced questions. Now there are a couple that we you know potentially might can't answer because they are more focused for a residential um, mortgage broker, which highlights the importance of obviously choosing the right broker for you know, the right thing you're doing. Um, So I'll skip past those in the interest of time, just so people listening can really get some answers from this. So I'm going to start with Annie Boyd. She says, do mortgage lenders put an upper age limit on who they will lend to on buy to let or HMO lending?
1: Yes, I mean, this this splits quite nicely across sort of residential and commercial, really. Um, So what I would say is, yes, they do, uh, but it varies lender to lender. So some might cap it at 65, some might cap it at 70. Uh, I think the highest one I've seen so far is 85. So just keep in mind that, I mean, their criteria is changing constantly. And obviously with people starting to live longer now as well, uh, obviously that's something that is coming into account as well. So I think, yeah, just speak to the broker. There'll there'll be a wide, wide variance of lenders uh, and the ages that they're happy to go up to.
0: Awesome. Um any 85 year old property investors please hit me up I'd love you on the show. Um and Abby B says are ERCs which are early redemption charges more or less on fixed or variable
1: mortgages. Again, I'm going to give a very boring answer to this one and that is that again it, it varies from lender to lender. Some it does some it doesn't. It's uh, it it all depends on the lender. Um j- sorry just to go back to the the previous question. Uh the 85 year old that's the maximum age they can be at the end of the mortgage term. So they can't, they can't take a mortgage when they're 85, but as long as they're not older than 85, when the term of the mortgage completes.
0: Uh, okay. So we're probably looking at six sixty sixty five 65 is kind of the max actual age you can be to get a mortgage.
1: Well, it depends. I mean, a 75 year old could take a 10 year, could take a 10 year term with someone like Shawbrook, for example. um, but yeah, I mean, again, it varies lander to lander.
0: Okay, cool. Um, and then next question is from Saif Rohan, a good friend of mine. So he said, What determines how likely you are to get a bricks and mortar valuation or a commercial valuation on a HMO post refurb? I've heard experience, I've heard area, and various other factors.
1: Okay, so this is a pretty simple one, actually, to be fair. Um, So all it comes down to is when the valuer goes out to value the property, they assess who is going to buy that property if the lender was to repossess it. So imagine I'm the valuer if I go out to a property and say, well, actually, the only person who can buy this is a family. That's going to be the most likely market for it that I'm going to give a bricks and mortar. If I go out to it and go, actually, you know what? a family couldn't move into this. So if I've, if I've got fire doors and all the doors, if I've got en-suites and all the bedrooms and all of the living spaces, um, if I've got planning for C4 use, for example, for a family to move in there, it's quite complicated for them to take all the en-suites out, to get the planning use back to residential. It, it's a bit of a faff. So chances are, as a valuer, I'm going to turn around and say, you know what? I think the only market for a property like this is going to be an investor. So I would give it an investment valuation. Now, obviously, there's some other bits that sort of sit behind that. So there's got to be good local comparables uh, because there's no point me giving an HMO an investment valuation if an HMO in the area is never sold on an investment valuation. So it has to be good, good, strong comparables. Um, And then, yeah, like I said, it's it's just got to be as far away from a family house as possible.
0: Okay, so I guess when it comes to HMO, the having all rooms as en-suites is, is probably kind of a, a one of the kind of ways to not guarantee but to push it towards being a a a commercial valuation because it's so different from a normal house
1: yeah and that, that's that's what you need to do is just make something that's as far from a family house as humanly possible
0: and is there still a chance that the value will just be mean and saying eh, this is a family house like and even though you have seven en-suites
1: so he, he might not say that it's a family house, but he might turn around and say, actually, there's no comparables in the area. I don't think that this could sell as an investment. He might just say there's no demand for something like that in the area. That's, that's probably the only way that he would turn around and sort of give it anything other than a commercial.
0: Ah, But if you've got HMO in, in you know, Birmingham city centre, let's be really kind of obvious with oh, this yeah, one, you
1: Oh yeah, you would think all day long that would get a commercial.
0: Okay, and then um, Saif Rahan also says, can Michael show a reasonable way to appraise a HMO to see what kind of commercial valuation you'd likely get?
1: Yeah, so there's no way really of knowing what a valuer is going to apply as a multiplier to the rent. The, that all comes down to comparables. So what I would say, and this is this is what I tell everyone to do, is go to com, which is the website for Ricks accredited valuers put in the postcode of where the HMO is going to be, and it will pull up all of the valuers in the area. You can then go onto a drop-down menu, click commercial, and it brings up the commercial valuers. Just ring through all of them and just say, look, I've got an HMO in the area. I'm looking at getting it valued. Can you give me an idea of what the multiplier is going to be? Can you give me an idea of what other HMOs in the areas are getting, how they've been laid out, what's going on with them? Now, you might find that if you ring 10, only two will have a conversation with you. But what I find really powerful about that is you you actually speak to the people who are going to be out there doing the valuations. So it just gives you a better idea of what you can actually get on that HMA.
0: Perfect. I love that. Solid advice. And Andrew Thomas, who I've actually met, says, how can crowdfunding be used to finance your property deals? Now, I know this is a huge topic. We could talk about this for itself. But I guess if you give a kind of nice overview of how Someone you know, could just get started in crowdfunding, maybe.
1: Yeah, so there's two different versions of crowdfunding, basically, when it comes to development finance, for example. Um, so the two versions you've got are debt crowdfunding and equity crowdfunding. And they pretty much do exactly what they say on the tin. So the debt crowdfunding works exactly the same as normal development finance, except the money is coming from people rather than a lender. So it just works exactly the same way. Equity crowdfunding is there basically to raise money into the SPV to put in as your equity contribution into a project. So, for example, you would sell shares in the company for a fixed return. Um, and what would happen, people would come in, they put the money in, and you would use that money essentially as your 10, 20% input into a deal. Um, you can also use equity crowdfunding for things like planning gains, um, refurbs, you can use it for whatever you can think of. Um, as long as you can pull people in who want to invest in you, then yeah, it can be used.
0: Okay. And when it comes to the kind of projects you want to put on there, is it the case that anything that stacks that is not a kind of vanilla bite to let or a kind of vanilla HMO generally seems to work and get funded pretty quickly?
1: Yeah, most things get funded. I mean, it's with actually crowdfunding and well, with crowdfunding in general. It's more about you than the project. The project is sort of a secondary uh, part of the thing, really. I mean, that's the security. But really, people are investing in you. So as long as you have a good following, as long as you put yourself across as reputable and, and know what you're doing, then you should be able to attract investors into the deal.
0: Okay, cool, solid. And there's obviously there's loads of different you know companies who do. Crowdfunding so you know everyone take a take a look at those and I mean I personally invest in some because it's you know as a property investor we understand it and it makes sense, and it's some pretty nice returns um I think some of them even have a hundred percent payback rate so far, so maybe there's a strategy in there. forget actually buying property, just chuck it in crowdfunding. I don't know just uh one to think about it, I guess um Andrew Thomas also asks, can a an essay so a service accommodation be valued commercially instead of bricks and mortar?
1: So, potentially, yes. Um, I would say there's probably only two lenders out there at the minute that will actually give it a business valuation, because that's what you're after really, you want it valued as a trading business. Um, So there are a couple of lenders out there that will essentially value it based off a multiplier of the EBITDA, um, and what you then get is is essentially that that trading valuation. Now, what I would say is on, on service accommodation, you tend to find that trading valuation isn't actually that far away from the bricks and mortar. Um, so I think if, if people are looking at getting into SA and hoping that the value is gonna spike like HMOs, it's just not gonna happen because what you need to remember about these properties. So let's say I take a flat in Peterborough city centre, for example. So I've got a flat in Peterborough city centre, I'm running it as SA um i'm making a good chunk of money um if i was to then request a lender to give me a business valuation they're not going to give me a huge amount more than what that property is worth because if they have to repossess they're repossessing a flat they're not repossessing a business so what happens is if i'm running a flat in Peterborough city center. It will be sold as a flat in Peterborough city center. It won't be sold as a trading service accommodation business because essentially you're you're the one bringing, your brand is the one bringing the customers in. Now I know anyone can set up on Airbnb and bring people in, but if you're bringing in most of your bookings through your brand, then that obviously can be quite damaging. So I just remember that about SA is that essentially you are just renting out a normal property by the night, that there isn't really a market for selling service accommodation businesses. I mean, some people might buy that sort of thing, uh, but if a lender repossesses that, there's no way they're going to sell it as a trading business.
0: Mm, makes sense. It's good. It's a good way to think about it. Worst case, what would what would the lender see it as or sell it as? Okay. And next question is from Richard Dyke. He says we've seen peer-to-peer P2P business models making inroads into the bridging and development finance sectors over recent years. Do you see this growth continuing and the P2P lending model being applied to other areas of property finance?
1: So, I love this question um, because it, it, I could talk about this for hours. So, I'm going to start off with I'm going to argue this on yes and no as to whether we'll see the growth of peer to peer. So, on the one hand, I I can see growth in peer to peer happening in development and bridging because it's high rates of return they're good schemes so you you see lenders like uh, octopus lend invest people like that who all of their money normally comes from to bit and they're lending it into development bridging getting good rates of return for their investors and more investors coming aboard because they want that rate of return because when they're offering sort of eight percent as a rate of return investors are going to jump on that now Just to jump over to the why I sort of don't see there being a massive growth is actually on the buy-to-let side of things. So I'm going to use Octopus again as an example. Octopus created something called Octopus Choice. Octopus Choice was uh, essentially a way of raising peer-to-peer money, which was then invested into buy-to-lets. Now, what happened is Octopus Choice did really, really well. They got a lot of money invested into it. Unfortunately, it then dropped off, obviously, with fears of of Brexit approaching things like that. And people weren't investing in it as much. Now, what that meant in December is that Octopus had to pull their buy-to-let range whilst they brought new investors on board. So, yes, I see the growth of peer-to-peer in development bridging that sector. I think realistically, we're not going to see any growth of peer-to-peer in the sort of buy-to-let term project uh, finance. Because I think the way the market is going at the minute on peer-to-peer, people want quick, easy wins. And I think realistically, yes, okay, bridging and development is higher risk. But if they think they can get their money out in a year rather than in 25 years, Uh, For me, I I would rather diversify my projects. I'd rather invest in 25 projects than one project. So for me, that's where I sort of see peer-to-peer going in the future. Um, I think it's a great model. It's a phenomenal model. And I use a lot of peer-to-peer lenders uh, on development finance, for example, because they do offer great rates. Um, And yeah, they are sometimes very easy to work with. Uh, But I think, yeah, on on the buy-to-let side of things, I think... We're only really going to see that funded by institutional lenders moving forward, I think.
0: Hmm. Okay, great question and great answer. Um, And Ashley Dawn uh, asked quite an interesting question. She said, with BM no longer providing mortgages below 50k and the lowest Barclays will offer being 46,667, what happens to the landlords who already have 40k mortgages when they come to the end of their current mortgage products? Will we mortgage be honoured with BM or will they have to find the difference? Combine a couple of properties together on one mortgage package or sell up. And she's also saying um, a lot of these may be in limited companies, so they may not be able to go into personal mortgages. What would you say to that?
1: So this one actually falls into uh, getting a, a resi broker uh, to, to look at this for you because this definitely is not my area of expertise. Um, but what I would say is from experience, uh, a, a lender will have to honour the existing products uh, because all, all they're doing is they're amending their future product range. So it's in my experience. I mean, it, who knows? end might not follow the same route. But if they're going to change their future product range, in theory, they shouldn't then affect anything that's on fixed rate, for example, um, or anything that's that's already existing because that would just be catastrophic for their for their loan book.
0: Hmm. Okay, that makes absolute sense well Michael, you know that reaches the the end of the kind of crowdsourced questions. Are there any topics that you know you you want to cover or anything else you want to add for for anyone listening who's interested in in finance and getting finance?
1: I think we've we've probably covered most things up I think with this one. I think what what I would say to people is just make sure that you get educated on what finance is out there. Um, that there's not many people that that are out there to educate investors and developers on what finance is actually available. Um, And it it can sometimes be, well, it can be one of two things. It can either be very restrictive because you don't know what's out there and you don't know what's available to you and you don't know what you can do to actually build the business up quicker. Uh, But it can also be very dangerous because you can go to a broker who maybe doesn't have access to all the options and it leaves you in a position where you're taking something that isn't suitable. So I, I try very hard to get educated on on what's out there um and also the other thing that i would say as well and the most important part of any deal is understand your exit so understand how you are going to get out of that finance because Mm. debt is great but an exit is even better
0: yeah okay absolutely that makes sense well michael thank you so much for for answering you know my questions at the beginning for answering the crowdsourced questions and, and telling us more about you and your experience so you know, just again for the listeners, if they want to get a hold of you or listen to your podcast, what what are the best ways to, to reach you?
1: Yes, I mean, one of the best ways is through Facebook. All of my contact details are on there. All the links to the podcast are on there. Uh, so if you just search for, for Michael Primrose. Um, I think I'm also down as Michael Primrose, the property finance guy as well. Um, but if not, we'll pop all the links to podcasts, emails, everything else uh, in the show notes.
0: Perfect. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. It's it's full of nuggets and full of information that I know the listeners are really, really going to value.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for having me. Almost
0: if up. you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn and
1: YouTube for more great content.